Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Our weekly roundtable is back. We focus on COP26, the UN climate conference that is wrapping up in Glasgow, Scotland. After thousands gathered there, including most world leaders, there's little left to show in the outcome thus far, except for a watered down mention of coal and fossil fuels. And even though watered down, the United States has refused to sign on to it. This as the Biden administration bends to the coal and oil lobby and is opening more access to oil and gas drilling. So much for U.S. leadership, complain other countries. China and the U.S. did announce what is seen as a breakthrough. They announced a non-binding climate agreement that some see at least as a step in the right direction. And the United States and other countries who are mostly responsible for the climate crisis are refusing to pay the funds needed by small islands and other developing countries of the global south who are the first to feel the brunt of climate change. Uh, They need these funds to stop and reverse the damage to their nations. Meanwhile, back in the United States, Two trials highlighting racial tensions in the United States are going on and comparisons are being made to the history of vigilantism in the United States. This as attacks on teaching the true history of the United States is increasingly under attack, including voters in Virginia electing the Republican candidate saying they are concerned about what they call the teaching of critical race theory in schools. This, they say, is a reason they oppose the Democratic candidate. And Nobel Prize winner Toni Morrison attack with some suggesting that they be burned, including Beloved and the Bluest Eye. What does all this mean as the nation still refuses to grapple with its own history and its present day legacy? On the international front, we get an update from south of the border and we look at what is happening with the migrant crisis in the United States and Europe, including the humanitarian crisis brewing at the Belarus-Poland border. Meanwhile, in China, President Xi moves to extend his presidency and to solidify his role in China's history. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Dr. Gerald Horn. Jackie Goldberg will be back with our roundtable next week. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headline. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. The warning by a United Nations official that the COP26 climate summit could amount to an elephant giving birth to a mouse appears to be coming true. A draft of the document that will emerge from the summit has been watered down. It backs away from a call to end all use of coal and phase out fossil fuel subsidies completely. Instead, the latest draft calls on countries to accelerate the phase out of unabated coal power and of 
inefficient subsidies for fossil fuels. The latest draft expresses deep regret that the rich nations didn't comply with their promises of $100 billion a year in aid to poor nations to cope with the effects of global warming. It calls on rich nations to urgently scale up aid but contains no guarantees. Climate activist Vanessa Nakate from Uganda warned the planet is on target to warm more than 2 degrees Celsius. Christopher Martinez filed this report. Climate activist Vanessa Nakate was inspired by Greta Thunberg to start a climate movement in her native Uganda. She says 9 million people who die each year from air pollution do not have decades to wait for oil and gas to be phased out. She says activists are skeptical, in part because they've heard promises of change before, and also because the largest delegation at COP26 was not from a country, but from the fossil fuel industry. Her remarks were a criticism, but also, crucially, a challenge. I am here to say, prove us wrong. I'm actually here to beg you to prove us wrong. We desperately need you to prove us wrong. Please, prove us wrong. God help us all if you fail to prove us wrong. Negotiators hope to wrap up a consensus statement Friday, the scheduled closing day. But as negotiations continue on issues like phasing out fossil fuel subsidies and assistance for poor countries, some think the meeting could continue into the weekend. I'm Christopher Martinez. A federal appeals court temporarily has blocked the release of Trump-era White House records to the U.S. House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. The appeals court ruling effectively bars until the end of this month the release of records that were to be turned over today. The appeals court set oral arguments in the case for November 30th. The case is likely to end up at the U.S. Supreme Court. An attorney for one of three white men standing trial for fatally shooting black jogger Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia says he doesn't want any more black pastors in the courtroom. The attorney made the comment to the trial judge a day after the Reverend Al Sharpton sat in the back of the courtroom with Arbery's parents. Obviously, there's only so many pastors they can have. And if their pastor's Al Sharpton right now, that's fine. But then that's it. We don't want any more black pastors coming in here or other Jesse Jackson, whoever was in was in here earlier this week, sitting with the victim's family, trying to influence a jury in this case. The attorney represents William Roddy Bryan, who, along with father and son, Greg and Travis McMichael, is charged with murder in Arbery's death last year. The Superior Court judge said he barely noticed Sharpton in the courtroom. Prosecutors and defense attorneys for Kyle Rittenhouse will return to the courthouse without the jury present today to finalize how jurors will be instructed when they get the murder case next week and begin deliberations. Closing arguments are scheduled for Monday. The 18-year-old told the jury he was defending himself from attack when he used his rifle to kill two men and wound a third on the streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin, in August of last year. Prosecutors have sought to portray Rittenhouse as the instigator of the bloodshed. It took place during a tumultuous night of protests after a police officer shot Jacob Blake in the back seven times, leaving him with a permanent spinal cord injury. Colorado's Democratic Governor Jared Polis has joined California in turning aside from federal guidance on COVID-19 booster shots, limiting them to people over 65 and others at high risk of infection. 
Polis has issued an order allowing all residents 18 years of age and older to get them. The order declares all of Colorado at high risk of infection. Hospitals in the state are overwhelmed. New Mexico hospitals are also nearing capacity. In Michigan, the three-county metro Detroit area is again becoming a hot spot for transmissions. COVID-19 cases are on the rise in 29 states altogether. Public health officials are alarmed at the rise, coming as it does ahead of the holiday season when people will travel and gather, likely sending the number of COVID-19 cases even higher. A court in military rule Myanmar has sentenced detained U.S. journalist Danny Fenster to 11 years in prison with hard labor after finding him guilty on several charges, including incitement for allegedly spreading false or inflammatory information. Fenster was the managing editor of the online magazine Frontier Myanmar. He has been detained since May. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Our weekly roundtable is back. On Friday, November 12th, the uh, UN Nations Climate Change Conference, known as COP26, or the Conference of the Parties, is scheduled to wrap up. The conference kicked off in Glasgow, Scotland on October 31st, but disappointment abounds as COP26 thus far has failed to meet its goals, even as increasingly the impacts of the climate crisis is felt across the world. Tuvalu, an island in the Pacific Ocean, has already lost 40% of its land mass. And unless things drastically change, it is expected to sink entirely into the ocean. Other small islands, including my home island of Barbados and other islands in the Caribbean, are also similarly under threat. The slogan, 1.5 to stay alive, is a chant popularized by environmentalists in the global south. 25,000 delegates from 200 countries and around 120 heads of state attended COP26. And on Friday, negotiators at the climate talks in Glasgow have seemed to have backed away from a call to end all use of coal and phase out fossil fuel subsidies completely. The latest draft proposals from the meeting's chair called on countries to accelerate, quote, the phase out of unabated coal power and of inefficient subsidies for fossil fuels. A previous draft on Wednesday had been stronger. It called on countries to, quote, accelerate the phasing out of coal and subsidies for fossil fuel, end of quote. On Wednesday, the governments of China and the United States agreed to increase climate cooperation over the next decade. The world's two largest CO2 emitters pledged to act in a joint declaration. The declaration claims that both parties will work together to achieve the 1.5 temperature goal. It also calls for stepped-up efforts to close the significant gap that remains to achieve that target. However, nothing in the U.S.-China agreement is binding. And the agreement coming out of uh, COP26 thus far is being roundly criticized by environmental campaigners and indigenous peoples around the world. They say it is vague and not ambitious enough. And although wealthy countries are overwhelmingly responsible for climate devastation, it is poor countries of the global south who pay the first price. But 
Global North countries are focused on mitigation and not adaptation and its funds to help poorer countries adaptation measures to combat climate change that are urgently needed have not been forthcoming. Climate finance, the process of getting wealthy countries to help countries of the global south combat environmental devastation has become a major point of contention as countries of the global north, in particular the United States, are balking at paying up. Many have pointed out that the Global North nations are trying to transfer its responsibilities for the climate crisis onto the developing world. And additionally, even within the Global North countries, including the United States, frontline communities, including indigenous lands, black, brown, and other impoverished communities are bearing the brunt of climate change, impacting women, children, and the elderly. Let us go to a clip now of world leaders uh, with their climate warnings, even though not much has come to it. Uh, please note the voice of the Barbados Prime Minister, uh, Mia Motley, who caused quite a stir with her speech at uh, COP26. Let's go to that clip right now. I was there with, with many of you in Copenhagen 11 years ago when we acknowledged we had a problem. I was there in Paris six years ago when we agreed to net zero and to try to restrain the rise in the temperature of the planet to 1.5 degrees. And all those promises will be nothing but blah, 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 to coin a phrase. And the anger and the impatience of the world will be uncontainable unless we make this COP26 in Glasgow the moment when we get real about climate change. It's time to say enough. Enough of brutalizing biodiversity. Enough of killing ourselves with carbon. Enough of treating nature like a toilet. Enough of burning and drilling and mining our way deeper. We are digging our own graves. Our planet is changing before our eyes, from the ocean depths to mountain tops, from melting glaciers to relentless extreme weather events. Sea level rise is double the rate it was 30 years ago. Oceans are hotter than ever and getting warmer faster. Parts of the Amazon rainforest now emit more carbon than they absorb. Recent climate action announcements might give the impression that we are on track to turn things around. This is an illusion. We can work with who is ready to go because the train is ready to leave. And those who are not yet ready, we need to continue to ring circle and to remind them that their people, not our people, but their citizens, need them to get on board as soon as possible. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. Two degrees, yes, SG, is a death sentence. I know you all carry a heavy burden on your shoulders, and you do not need me to tell you that the eyes and hopes of the world are upon you. To act with all dispatch and decisively, 
because time has quite literally run out. My plea today is for countries to come together to create the environment that enables every sector of industry to take the action required. In my lifetime, I've witnessed a terrible decline in yours. You could and should witness a wonderful recovery. That desperate hope, ladies and gentlemen, delegates, excellency, is why the world is looking to you and why you are here. All righty. And uh, those voices that you heard included uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, the UN uh, Secretary uh, General uh, Gutierrez, the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Amor uh, Motley, Prince Charles, uh, who is the uh, Prince of Wales, among others. I would now like to welcome our roundtable uh, today. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, Director of the Americas Program. She works with Justice Associates and International Feminist Organization. She's based in Mexico City, where she is a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura Carlson is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura Carlson, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. It's great to be back. Yes, wonderful uh, to have you uh, back. And Jackie Goldberg assures us that she will be joining us uh, next week. But it means that it, both of you have a bit more time uh, to stretch out on these stories here. I'd like to welcome Dr. Gerald Horn, who's the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He's also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th uh, Century. He's also the winner of the American Book Award. Dr. Horn, so glad to have you back. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for inviting me. All righty. So, uh, Carlson, let's start with you. I mean, if... It's kind of unbelievable to think of what is not happening at COP26. When you look at the devastating impact of climate change felt not only now in the global south, but also in the global north. You see the, the hurricanes in the United States, the tornadoes, the flooding uh, that happened uh, in Germany, uh, also the, the, um, the hunger going on uh, now um, in so many parts of the world be having to do with drought, the fact of migration uh, being driven also by climate crisis, of people having to leave where they traditionally have lived because they're climate refugees, because they have to move elsewhere, but yet we see not a whole heck of a lot happening. Uh, Laura, what has jumped out at you thus far from a COP26? That's right, Margaret. I think what jumps out is the lack of action in an absolutely critical situation. In August, we had the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change come out with a report that's unlike any report we've seen in the past. What it did was lay to rest um, any doubts uh, from the climate deniers 
that there was a link between climate change, global warming, and human activity. They absolutely established it. It's a 4,000-page report on the physical science of climate change. And they established that climate change was happening at a rate much faster than even some of the most pessimistic studies had predicted before that. And also that an increment of just a half a degree has drastic impacts on the climate. I mean, this was, this was a huge a revelation, not a revelation, it was a confirmation, really. And, of course, it's something that people are seeing in many parts of the, of the world, especially farmers, as they realize what's happening to agriculture and then people who have been subject to these extreme climate events that, that you mentioned. So here we have a draft that comes out on Wednesday that's roundly criticizing for, criticized for being voluntary, for being weak and diluted in the midst of this crisis. And what happens after that is that it gets worse and worse. As negotiations go on, it's looking like, um, you know, what will eventually come out will be um, the lowest common denominator, which is not survivable for the planet or for the people on it. You know, they backed away from subsidies. They have deep regret that company, that countries are not paying for climate change. I mean, what does that mean? They want to see their, they want to end inefficient subsidies for fossil fuels. What do we want? Efficient subsidies for fossil fuels? You know, it's just a travesty what the COP26 is talking about in terms of the impact on human lives. And as you mentioned, as a, is often mentioned, particularly on human lives in already very vulnerable areas. The UN chief said, the Secretary General Antonio Guterres said today that the goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees is on life support. Um, I think the COP26 is basically going to pull the plug uh, instead of giving it any oxygen whatsoever. And then it will be up to nations where the power plays are equally stacked against survival, against the environmental movements, and up to people themselves. Uh, the Climate Action Tracker has said that even if we were to adhere to the commitments that were in the draft, there would be a rise of 2.4 degrees, way above the 1.5. And if current practices continue, because... Again, since these are voluntary and insufficient, um, they often don't even achieve their own benchmarks. If current practices continue, it'd be up to 2.7. The impact of that on every ecosystem, whether it's the oceans or agriculture or where you live, you know, is, is absolutely catastrophic. There were some agreements that have been signed so far on de deforestation and on methane. They're mostly being called symbolic actions. This is not a time for symbolic actions. Symbolic actions aren't going to save lives. They aren't going to save the planet. So we're waiting to see if there's anything that can really be called an achievement to come out of here. The Nigerian um, environmentalist who's on Democracy Now!, his name is Mimi Bass, he said, basically, these agreements, what we're looking at right now, like and like I said, they're getting worse instead of better, would set Africa on fire. 
Africa is a place that has fewer resources to meet the adaptation requirements and that suffers climate change, global warming, uh, at a higher degree than other parts of the, world, of the world. It actually gets warmer in the continent as a whole and has already seen the kinds of droughts and heat waves that that implies. Um, at the same time, what they're coming up with, and again, one of the speakers that you played when we started mentioned this, there are 500 fossil fuel lobbyists at this meeting. That's more than most nations, of course, and more than uh, and the, the demonstrators, the people who are actually arguing in defense of the planet, are pretty much on the outside. So there, there's a huge power play going on with these people having an incredible influence on the way that the negotiations proceed. So rather than having negotiations that are meant to alleviate or put the brakes on global warming, even in this context where we know how disastrous that will be, we have a situation where, um, where there's basically a negotiation going on in order to continue business as usual. Um, they have all the power to do this. Uh, there was also it was also mentioned that both in the European Union and in the United States, there's continued investment in oil and gas. Not only is it not being phased out, but it, there's continued investment in oil and gas. The corporate Europe observatory said that there are plans to drill more than 800 new oil and gas wells around the around the world. Um, and the United States and the Biden administration itself has been supporting new investments as well. So what we're looking at is uh, a very dismal panorama in terms of the future uh, with the failure of this COP26 with uh, planetary problems that have zero political will for high-level global solutions. What does that mean? It means we go back to nations where, again, the power, the, the kind of the power relations are against us as well because of the, the pressure by the oil and gas lobbies and others within national governments, and we go back to the streets. What Bassey said also was, the only hope I see in this situation is that the people who are on the outside were on the inside. There are indigenous solutions on the local levels, on the national levels. They've been working with sustainable models for, for centuries. There's a new youth movement, largely yet led by youth, but also with alliances with other sectors that will not accept a non-solution to these. And that's also rejecting the technological proposals, such as carbon capture, the kinds of proposals that allow polluters to continue to pollute while creating new markets for capitalist development in technologies that are only postponing the inevitable de demise of the planet. So there's a lot of consciousness, there's a lot of anger, but right now what we're not going to see is solutions coming out of this COP26. Thank you, Laura Carlson. And, you know, uh, Gerald Horn, it was very poignant to see the foreign minister of Tuvalu uh, Island uh, in the 
uh, Pacific Ocean standing knee deep in water, fully suited, um, giving his appeal uh, to COP26. And it was very moving also to hear the Barbados Prime Minister quote the musician Eddie Grant um, uh, from the Caribbean, who will mourn us on the front line. And uh, Dr. Horn, the whole thing seems suicidal, hard-hearted, I mean, not caring about those of us who may sink into the sea. Dr. Horn, you've been to Barbados. You you know what the, what the place is like. I mean, it's just terrifying. But Dr. Horn, I also wonder if the main thing that's happening here is that the countries of the global north are not doing anything about any of this because climate justice, stopping climate uh, destruction is really not compatible with Capitalism, Dr. Horn. Well, obviously you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, that is to say that the problem is that under capitalism, big business holds sway, and politicians, elected officials, are oftentimes puppets. That's certainly the model in the United States of America. And that means weakening of government action, which is the route through which we can help to arrest this climate emergency. This, of course, then leads to these vague pledges to decarbonize that we have seen in Glasgow in the past week or so. And it reminds me of the off-sighted quotation from St. Augustine of centuries ago, where he pledged to assume and to adopt chastity, but just not yet. And so that's the import of these pledges that you see uh, flowing from Glasgow. Not only that, but imperialism has worked overtime to weaken not only the concept of government and centralized power here in North America, but has done so abroad as well. And that makes it very difficult to corral big business, which is the order of the day, if we're serious about this climate crisis. And there's another point, too. Uh, we should not rule out the adaptability of imperialism, the current issue of foreign affairs published by the elite Council on Foreign Relations of Manhattan, there's an article that suggests that the now hopefully discredited doctrine of responsibility to protect should be extended to the environment and to wildlife. Recall that about a decade ago, responsibility to protect, or RTP, was deployed in Libya, supposedly because the then government in Tripoli was about to unleash a massacre, and therefore the international community had the right and obligation to intervene. Uh, they did so and have created a catastrophe in Libya as a result. Now we're told that if a country like Gabon, uh, which has substantial rainforests, uh, does something that the imperialist powers see as inimical to what are referred to as the lungs of the earth, then the imperialist powers have a responsibility to protect those rainforests and the wildlife, for that matter, and to intervene and engage in regime change in Gabon, just like they engaged in regime change in Libya. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I think it's worthy to note that this slogan of climate reparations is gaining altitude. Uh, that bit's fair to put wind in the sails of the companion slogan here in North America of reparations for the crimes of enslavement. Uh, likewise, when the uh, climate activists ask that 
the Paris Accords and other accords on the environment be upheld and not vitiated, uh, that gives wind in the sails to the demands of Native American activists that the many treaties uh, with Washington uh, with regard to Native American rights be upheld. And then there's the concept of climate gentrification. Uh, You may know that in the little Haiti neighborhood of Miami, it's elevated. And as a result, this mostly black neighborhood, which is elevated, is witnessed a wave of gentrification from lower-lying areas around Miami Beach, driving up prices of homes and driving out the uh, historic residents, because it's unclear if Miami Beach will survive by the year 2100, which raises companion issues with regard to other uh, beach communities, uh, speaking of Malibu in your neck of the woods, or Sausalito due north, or the Hamptons uh, off the coast of uh, Manhattan. And then there's the question of transition, uh, which I think is going to be the, one of the most important buzzwords of the coming decade. It's not only this discussion about transition from fossil fuels to renewables, but it's the fact that this transition obviously is getting off to a very bumpy start, assuming that it's taking place in any case. Uh, for example, despite all of this blah, blah, blah in Glasgow about moving away from the internal combustion engine and from fossil fuels, the fact is, as I'm sure people in your neighborhood know, the price of a gallon of gas seems to be rising, as is the case in the United States of America, uh, which has led the U.S. President, Mr. Biden, to back off pressure on the Saudis, who are the driving force of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, And we also know that ExxonMobil, which is the major force in the petroleum market in this country, is busily drilling, not least off the coast of Guyana in the northern coast of South America. And so what we see is that as a result of the United States trying to cozy up to Saudi Arabia, that's led to a companion question, uh, which is this mega arms deal with Saudi Arabia, which was just announced yesterday, which obviously is not going to be helpful in terms of uh, saving uh, humanity, uh, given the Saudi role in war in Yemen, among other places. And then there's the ability of the corporation and the corporate sector to manipulate the government in their behalf. Uh, We look at corporations like Tesla, for example, uh, which has had a rising stock price, which has put Elon Musk, the major shareholder, ironically born in Pretoria in apartheid South Africa, uh, on the route perhaps to becoming the first trillion-dollar man, at least in modern times, uh, because of government subsidies to electric vehicles or EVs that he specializes in through Tesla. And then there's the question which was lurking beneath the surface, if not on the surface, in Scotland, which is, how does the United States and its allies compete with the People's Republic of China since China has invested heavily in green energy and invested heavily in solar panels in particular? And this is taking place at the same time that we are told that the United States and its allies are trying to decouple their economies from the economy of the People's Republic of China, 
which I think helps to enlighten us with regard to the supposed uh, supply chain snarl that has led to a denuding of shelves and major stores has caused certain schools to not be able to stock their cafeterias, for example, and has led to this spectacle of all of these ships lined up off the coast of Los Angeles, Long Beach, uh, looking to land and unload goods. So what, what I'm suggesting is that this transition away from China is also important. It's also going to involve uh, bumps in the road, just like the transition we're told about from fossil fuels will involve bumps in the road as we are now witnessing. Wow, just a uh, uh, brilliant, brilliant analysis there. Thank you, Laura Carlson, Dr. Uh, Gerald Horn. And uh, Gerald, on your point about reparations and subsidies, I mean, if you look at the huge amount of taxpayer dollars that go to subsidize agribusiness in the United States, and including big farms uh, in some cases paying them not to grow uh, certain crops, while on the other hand, you have black farmers who have been doing traditional uh, farming, um, a more natural way, taking care of the soil, being disenfranchised, using their land, and now a, a court a court case blocking uh, some of the reparatory justice that black uh, farmers should have. But there's a lot of talk about emissions uh, and not enough about what is happening with the land, what is happening with the soil and soil regeneration and the role that that could play uh, to uh, uh, stem the climate crisis. So we'll be talking more about that uh, coming up. Um, but thank you so much, both of you. We're going to take our station break now. And when we return, we'll go to the national front. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Get up every day to work his life away. Oh, farmer. So much work with so little pay. We want to give a shout out to farmers as we're talking about the environment. Farmers, agricultural workers are those who are very much at the front lines um, in protecting the earth and increasingly moving to a more natural way of addressing the soil and the food uh, that we eat. It is our weekly roundtable. Our panelists today, Laura Carlson, Dr. Gerald Horn. We're now going to uh, turn our attention to what's happening on the national front. A lot going on there from the elections where Republicans are touting 
their victories. Uh, um, uh, voters in uh, Virginia voting for Republican businessman, wealthy businessman, Jet Glenn Youngkin, they say in part because, uh, well, not in part, a good percentage of them say it's because they're concerned about the teaching of so-named critical race theory in schools. You have these parent right-wing parents' rights groups that are springing up across the country, threatening academics, threatening uh, school board members, attacks on the books of Toni Morrison, uh, including Beloved and uh, The Bluest Eye. Just a lot happening on, on the uh, national front. But meanwhile, two high-profile cases uh, happening now in the United States. Let's go to interesting analysis here uh, from M of all places, MSNBC Joy reads on uh, vigilantism in the United States. I think it's really worth a listen. So I was talking with my brilliant sister friend, Erin Haynes of the 19th with the asterisk on Wednesday night, the evening after Kyle Rittenhouse tearfully testified at his murder trial in Wisconsin, like a mini Brett Kavanaugh. And we were talking about how this case reminds us so much of the George Zimmerman trial, in which Zimmerman, an adult, was acquitted on July 13th 2013, of murdering a teenager, 17-year-old Trayvon Martin. Much like the Rittenhouse case, the Zimmerman case was fundamentally about American vigilantism and whether it is legal in America for a person not in law enforcement to take it upon themselves, to arm themselves with a gun and mete out what they view as justice in the name of self-defense and investigating property crime. According to the laws maneuvered into place by the NRA, that is indeed legal in America. Statistically, mainly if you're white. European history on the American continent from 1619 to today is an almost unbroken record of vigilantism in the name of defending property rights, whether that property was human and African and enslaved or in the form of wives or daughters who had no individual property or voting rights of their own and whether or whether it was physical land. America is a country formed by men who threw off the European kings to become little kings of their own with land and slaves and women under their charge. And whether it was the colonizers merciless enforcement of their own made up authority to forcibly seize indigenous people's land, often wiping out entire tribes or the fugitive slave laws that authorized any white man to forcibly recapture enslaved people who broke for freedom or the religious fanatics, who claimed the right to try and burn at the stake any woman deemed to be a witch, or the more than 4,000 lynchings from the Redemption era to Emmett Till and the massacres from Elaine, Arkansas to Wilmington, North Carolina to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and on and on and on. Any white man who claimed a crime had occurred felt completely entitled to enforce the law himself, sometimes with a gang of his friends. And the best part? These sacred laws almost never applied to these men. They were virtually immune from the law themselves. American media has even glorified the white male vigilante from Steve McQueen to Clint Eastwood and John Wayne, especially in Westerns. It gets trickier for some folks when the vigilante is named Django or Nat Love. But given that vigilantism is so steeped in American culture, should we really be surprised? The 17-year-old Proud Boys fan believed that he had the perfect right to cross state lines and protect property with the AR-15 he got because he thought it was cool. Or that Zimmerman believed it was his duty to investigate property crime by following a 17-year-old kid and shooting and killing him even after police told him to stand down. These two teenagers, Kyle Rittenhouse and Trayvon Martin, 
exist on entirely opposite sides of the American legal system and of Black Lives Matter, right? The, the white kid with the AR-15 who shot three white Black Lives Matter protesters, Fox News types, and apparently Tulsi Gabbard, view him as someone who could be their son, clean-cut and innocent, maybe even heroic. While the black kid, who was holding candy and iced tea in his hands for his little brother, and for whom the hashtag Black Lives Matter was born, not so much. He must have been a thug, right? And everybody who's willing to pay attention knows what I just said is true. It should be no surprise that in America, three white alleged vigilantes believe that they had the right to enforce the law against property crime on an unarmed black jogger who hadn't committed any crime, Ahmaud Arbery, and they'll probably get away with it too. They could take it upon themselves to right the so-called wrong Trump believed had been committed against him in the elect black and brown voters in key states by getting him installed by force, by invading the Capitol with a noose, defecating on the grounds, flying the treason flag, and attacking police. Or the Texas men who oppose abortion believe the law should authorize them to collect a bounty on women who legally obtain an abortion under the soon-to-be defunct Roe v. Wade. Because in these men's minds, they are the law. The only law that matters in America. And you want to know why they think that? Because the law keeps telling them so. You know, uh, we'll actually start with you here. I hope you heard a more outrage, uh, Joy Reid here. Um, one of the reasons I, I played this clip in Dr. Horn. Also, what I, I really think this um, history of vigilantism um, just spelled out there the attack that's happening on the teaching of the true history of the United States is so named uh, critical race uh, theory, um, wanting to burn books and ban books, including the books of, of Tony Morris. I really see them as one as a whole here in the United States and of the country in so many ways refusing to grapple with its own history and the um, how the the aftermath of that history as it expresses itself today. Uh, Dr. Horn, uh, you're a lot on, on all this, including the um, the election results, uh, which are also all tied up with this, Dr. Horn. Well, clearly the implication of the commentary by Joy Reid is that there was a transition in North America in 1776 from the divine right of monarchs and the divine rights of kings to the divine right of certain European men of property and certain European men without property for that matter. And it's an inability of, to deal with that kind of contradiction has hampered us in our ability to make a diagnosis, diagnosis of the present situation and then uh, make a prescription. Now, with regard to the election, I would say that there were mixed results. Uh, we had the election uh, as mayor of Seattle, Bruce Harrell, of uh, African and Asian descent. The election in Boston as mayor of Michelle Wu, of Taiwanese, uh, Asian-American, Chinese descent. But, of course, uh, we would be remiss if we ignored the disasters, such as the defeat of the Social Democrat, India Walton, to be mayor of Buffalo, uh, based upon a write-in campaign by the man she defeated in the primary, and it was assisted by a tidal wave of red-baiting, including, I'm afraid to say, by the former governor of New York, the first black governor, David Patterson, who had the temerity and the nerve to invoke uh, a 75-year-old novel by Ralph Ellison, uh, Invisible Man, because he thought 
that it was sufficiently anti-communist and sufficiently strong to undermine India Walton. And speaking of novels, you mentioned uh, Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved, which strikingly became an issue in the gubernatorial race in Virginia. Supposedly, uh, this anti-slavery story traumatized Euro-American readers who were supposed to read it in advanced placement classes in high school. And this points up another facet, another contradiction, because it was not so long ago that one of the tropes trotted out by the right wing is that we on the left were snowflakes. We were much too sensitive. But now we see who the real sensitive parties are, that they cannot stand to read a leading novel by a Nobel laureate. And this is part of this campaign against so-called critical race theory, uh, which became an issue in Virginia and indeed uh, uh, nationwide. And the companion campaign against so-called wokeness, or a campaign basically against anti-racism, but there are some sharp contradictions there that will soon be emerging. Uh, for example, the New York Times columnist uh, Brett Stevens has been vocal in his condemnation of wokeness, of critical race theory. But what he failed to contemplate, as has many of his comrades, is that if you look at Politico, Politico.com, you'll see a major blockbuster story about the senatorial primary in Ohio where the leading candidate, Josh Mandel, happens to be Jewish, a la Mr. Stevens, who considers himself to be a zealous campaigner on behalf of the rights of Jewish Americans. And now his opponents from the right are questioning his faith, uh, questioning uh, whether or not it's appropriate to have a Jewish man be the senatorial nominee in the state of Ohio. I think that it's going to be difficult going forward to have, on the one hand, a campaign against wokeness and against uh, anti-racism, uh, particularly against anti-black racism, on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, try to carry the flag high to defend the rights of Jewish Americans. I don't think that that's going to be a sustainable enterprise. On the other hand, I don't think we should be surprised that in a country where Ronald Wilson Reagan got elected in 1980, uh, campaigning against the so-called welfare queen, uh, which in the mind's eye was a black woman cheating the government, or his uh, former vice president, then uh, presidential nominee in 1988, the George H.W. Bush campaigned against the fabled uh, alleged black rapist, speaking of Willie Horton, uh, trotted out in numerous campaign ads, or that Richard Nixon and many other Republicans have campaigned against law and order, which is the subtext for denigrating and demonizing the so-called black criminal, or that Joseph R. Biden, when he got his start in Delaware, he was a vocal opponent of busing, that is to say, demonizing black kids. Now, with regard to Virginia in particular, uh, Terry McAuliffe was the prototypical corporate Democrat. Uh, he elbowed a number of black women, uh, possible nominees for the gubernatorial race out of the uh, out of the race and then claims that the nomination uh, there were no black americans at the top of the ticket even though the democratic party is heavily dependent upon uh, black american voters and then you saw this demagogic campaign as noted uh, not only against critical race theory but also you saw this campaign against uh, diversity inclusion and equity uh, that is to say 
that uh, the Republicans, led by Glenn Youngkin, the multi-millionaire uh, winner of the race, uh, they campaigned against this notion on the one hand, which is notions of including those who have been traditionally excluded. But then his lieutenant governor, who won, Winston Sears, is a Jamaican-American woman, a black woman, uh, who is to the right of Larry Elder in California, who got millions of votes running against Gavin Newsom a weeks ago in the recall election. The winning attorney general, uh, Jason Mayorkas, is of Cuban descent. And of course, uh, I'm afraid to say that he won, not least because he campaigned against socialism, uh, which he sees as an albatross around the neck of his uh, ancestral island, speaking of Cuba and suggesting that the Democrats are trying to deliver socialism to the United States of America. And so you see that on the one hand, the Republicans are running campaigns against diversity. On the other hand, they're incorporating diversity. And I'm afraid to say that that trick has fooled some of our friends on the left, because in a number of venues that I've been part of in recent days and weeks, I've had folks on the left criticize the whole diversity, inclusion, and equity campaign and I'm really not sure why. I think it's because they think it somehow diverts us from a more radical alternative. But I don't feel that they thought that through because the alternative to diversity, equity, inclusion, it's once again just reinscribing the divine right of men of European descent, particularly those of property. Now, there are more troubling signs with regard to this election you had a number of insurrectionists from January 6th who were elected in school board races and state house, race, state house races, particularly in the state of Virginia. Uh, you have this movement of so-called constitutional sheriffs, which is a nationwide phenomenon. These are uh, sheriffs, uh, de facto police departments, that claim that they are the ultimate interpreter of what is legal and constitutional and that they can ignore laws that they deem to be unconstitutional, even ignore Supreme Court mandates if they don't feel that they go far enough to the right. Now, in Los Angeles County, you have a version of that with the sheriff's office basically uh, tolerating gangs that oftentimes terrorize the black and brown young men in particular. And as noted, all of this is taking place against the backdrop of these criminal trials in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in Brunswick, Georgia, where I think we should brace ourselves. Dr. Dr. Horn, I'm not sure you're, you're hearing me. Um, we could spend the entire hour on this. Everything you're saying is absolutely brilliant, but I am afraid we only have like about three minutes left in the hour. And I do want to give, so we'll, we'll return to this, uh, Dr. Horn, maybe just do a whole full hour special with you. Uh, but uh, Laura Carlson, I'm afraid um, we likely will just have time for you to talk a little bit about uh, Mexico's on the international front. Mexico President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador has made a, a what is seen as a controversial proposal to the UN uh, General Assembly, and we see trouble on the border, the migrant border, not only in the United States but on the in Europe, on the um, the border of uh, Poland and Belarus. I think. Um, Laura Carlson, you'll likely have the final word, given uh, how short our time is right now. Thank you. Yeah, I know, I know we have very little time, but I can't resist reacting to this analysis. First, 
Dr. Horn begins and ends his analysis with the core fact that the United States is a society that recognizes white property males as citizens exclusively. And that's really fundamental to what the clip that was played is talking about as well. We're looking at a patriarchal system that generated this idea that white men can defend themselves. Where I would put in a caveat is that they may say that they're enforcing laws, but there's, there's really no aspect of this in which they can be interpreted as enforcing laws through this vigilantism. And instead, what they're clearly enforcing is this system of privileges, their own privileges, that makes it possible to use the pretext of the law when it's convenient and then hold themselves above the law when it's not convenient for their own interests. And as you mentioned, the law itself is, is developed to do this. So basically, so much of what we're seeing does fit within that framework. We see elections that I don't think we should read too much into because there's there are off-year uh, elections that actually did have some mixed results, that was pointed out. But we are seeing the consolidation of that backlash of defensive privileges within the system where we do have a Republican Party that's moving openly toward, toward book burning, openly toward... Um, toward racism, which is something that's been happening for a long time. And then we have these moderate Republicans, like the New York Times, saying that what these elections show is that we have to return to moderate policies. We cannot accept this. We can't afford, at this time in the United States, lowest common denominator politics, because what Trumpism has done is define new lows that we never before thought possible the new lows in which there's formal recognition of racism. The democratic mantra now has to be not to, mob not to unite under these lowest common denominators, but to mobilize. And there's a sense in which the speech in the UN fits in as well of the Mexican president, which is largely symbolic uh, because it doesn't really have teeth behind it, but the idea that putting on the table formally the inequality of wealth that has deepened during the pandemic that has uh, ironically, you know, fed well, I'm afraid we are out of time. We're going to have to return yes. to the international front <laughs> yes, on, uh, on the next roundtable. Uh, I've got to get out of here for the next show, but just fantastic uh, roundtable with both of you. I'm just so sorry there wasn't a bit more time. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our panelists today. I'd like to thank our audio engineer, Wendell Handy. I want to thank you, Mark Maxwell, for coming in uh, today and uh, helping us out. Also, our assistant producer, Romero Funes. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air on Tuesday. I hope you get to do something really nice this weekend, and I hope to see many of you on the climate crisis uh, webinar that for the California Poor People's Campaign is having this coming Sunday. So tune in for that. We'll be live streaming it on uh, Pacifica Radio Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and you all please stay safe and hope you get to do something really nice this weekend.